Section 4 of The Red and the Black, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Red and the Black, Volume 2, by Stendhal. Translated by Horace B. Samuel. The Hotel de la Mole. If everything in the aristocratic salon of the Hotel de la Mole seemed strange to Julian, that pale young man in his black suit seemed in his turn very strange to those persons who deigned to notice him. Madame de la Mole suggested to her husband that he should send him off on some business on those days when they had certain persons to dinner. "'I wish to carry the experiment to its logical conclusion,' answered the Marquis. "'The Abbé Pirard contends that we are wrong in crushing the self-respect of the people whom we allow around us.' one can only lean on what resists. The only thing against this man is his unknown face, apart from that he is a deaf-mute. If I am to know my way about, said Julien to himself, I must write down the names of the persons whom I see come to the salon together with a few words on their character. He put at the head of the list five or six friends of the house who took every opportunity of paying court to him, believing that he was protected by a whim of the Marquis. They were poor, dull devils, but it must be said in praise of this class of men, such as they are found today, in the salon of the aristocracy that every one did not find them equally tame. One of them was now allowing himself to be bullied by the Marquis, who was venting his irritation at a harsh remark which had been addressed to him by the Marquis. The masters of the house were too proud or too prone to boredom. They were too much used to finding their only distraction in the addressing of insults to enable them to expect true friends. But, except on rainy days, and in rare moments of savage boredom, they always showed themselves perfectly polite. If the five or six toadies who manifested so paternal an affection towards Julien had deserted the Hôtel de la Mole, the Marquise would have been exposed to long spells of solitude, and in the eyes of women of that class, solitude is awful. It is the symbol of disgrace. The Marquis was charming to his wife. He saw that her salon was sufficiently furnished, though not with peers, for he did not think his new colleagues were sufficiently noble to come to his house as friends, or sufficiently amusing to be admitted as inferiors. It was only later that Julien fathomed these secrets. The governing policy of a household, though it forms the staple of conversation in bourgeois families, 
is only alluded to in families of the class of that of the Marquis in moments of distress. So paramount, even in this bored century, is the necessity of amusing oneself, that even on the days of dinner parties the Marquis had scarcely left the salon before all the guests ran away. Provided that one did not make any jests about either God or the priests or the king or the persons in office or the artists who enjoyed the favor of the court or of anything that was established, provided that one did not praise either Béranger or the opposition papers or Voltaire or Rousseau or anything which involved any element of free speech, provided that above all that one never talked politics, one could discuss everything with freedom. There is no income of a hundred thousand crowns a year and no blue ribbon which could sustain a contest against such a code of salon etiquette. The slightest live idea appeared a crudity. In spite of the prevailing good form, perfect politeness and desire to please, ennui was visible in every face. The young people who came to pay their calls were frightened of speaking of anything which might make them suspected of thinking or betraying that they had read something prohibited, and relapsed into silence after a few elegant phrases about Rossini and the weather. Julien noticed that the conversation was usually kept alive by two vice-counts, and that five barons whom Monsieur de la Mole had known at the time of their emigration. These gentlemen enjoyed an income of from six to eight hundred thousand francs. Four swore by the Quotidienne, and three by the Gazette de France. One of them had every day some anecdote to tell about the chateau, in which he made lavish use of the word admirable. Julien noticed that he had five crosses, the others, as a rule, only had three. By way of compensation, six footmen in livery were to be seen in the anteroom, and during the whole evening ices or tea were served every quarter of an hour. All about midnight there was a kind of supper of champagne. This was the reason that sometimes induced Julien to stay till the end. Apart from this, he could scarcely understand why anyone could bring himself to take seriously the ordinary conversation in this magnificently gilded salon. Sometimes he would look at the talkers to see if they themselves were not making fun of what they were saying. My Monsieur de Maitre, whom I know by heart, he thought, has put it a hundred times better, and all the same he is pretty bored. Julien was not the only one to appreciate this stifling moral atmosphere. Some consoled themselves by taking a great quantity of ices, others by the pleasure of saying all the rest of the evening, I have just come from the Hotel de la Mole, where I learnt that Russia, etc. 
Julian learnt from one of the toadies that scarcely six months ago, Madame de la Mole had rewarded more than twenty years of assiduous attention by promoting the poor Baron Le Bourguignon, who had been a sub-prefect since the Restoration, to the rank of a prefect. This great event had whetted the zeal of all these gentlemen. Previously there were few things to which they would have objected. Now they objected to nothing. There was rarely any overt lack of conversation, but Julien had already caught at meals two or three little short dialogues between the Marquis and his wife, which were cruel to those who were seated near them. These noble personages did not conceal their sincere contempt for everyone who was not sprung from people who were entitled to ride in the carriages of the king. Julien noticed that the word crusade was the only word which gave their face an expression of deep seriousness akin to respect. Their ordinary respect had always a touch of condescension. In the middle of this magnificence and this boredom, Julien was interested in nothing except Monsieur de la Mole. He was delighted to hear him protest one day that he had had nothing to do with the promotion of that poor Le Bourguignon. It was an attention to the Marquise. Julien knew the truth from the Abbé Pirard. The abbé was working in the Marquise's library with Julien one morning at the eternal de Frilair lawsuit. Monsieur, said Julien suddenly, is dining every day with Madame la Marquise one of my duties or a special favor that they show to me? It's a special honor, replied the scandalized abbé. Monsieur the Académicien, who has been cultivating the family for fifteen years, has never been able to obtain so much for his Monsieur Tombeau. I find it, sir, the most painful part of my employment. I was less bored at the seminary. Sometimes I see even Mademoiselle de la Mole yawn and yet she ought to be accustomed to the social charms of the friends of the house. I'm frightened of falling asleep. As a favor, obtain permission for me to go and get a forty-sous dinner in some obscure inn. The abbé, who was a true snob, was very appreciative of the honor of dining with a great lord. While he was endeavoring to get Julien to understand this point of view, a slight noise made them turn round. Julien saw Mademoiselle de la Mole listening. He reddened. She had come to fetch a book and had heard everything. She began to entertain some respect for Julien. He has not been born servile, she thought, like that old abbé. Heavens, how ugly he is! At dinner, Julien did not venture to look at Mademoiselle de la Mole, but she was kind enough to speak to him. They were expecting a lot of visitors that day, and she asked him to stay. 
The young girls of Paris are not at all fond of persons of a certain age, especially when they are slovenly. Julien did not need much penetration to realize that the colleagues of Monsieur Le Bourguignon, who remained in the salon, had the privilege of being the ordinary butt of Mademoiselle de la Mole's jokes. On this particular day, whether or not by reason of some affectation on her part, she proved cruel to bores. Mademoiselle de la Mole was the center of a little knot which used to form nearly every evening, behind the Marquise's immense armchair. There were to be found there the Marquis de Croisenois, the Comte de Caillus, the Vicomte de Lux, and two or three other young officers, the friends of Norbert or his sister. These gentlemen used to sit down on a large blue sofa. At the end of the sofa, opposite the part where the brilliant Mathilde was sitting, Julien sat in silence on a little, rather low straw chair. This modest position was envied by all the toadies. Norbert kept his father's young secretary in countenance by speaking to him, or mentioning him by name once or twice in the evening. On this particular occasion, Mademoiselle de la Mole asked him what was the height of the mountain on which the citadel of Besançon is planted. Julien had never any idea of this mountain was higher or lower than Montmartre. He often laughed heartily at what was said in this little knot, but he felt himself incapable of inventing anything analogous. It was like a strange language which he understood but could not speak. On this particular day, Mathilde's friends manifested continuous hostility to the visitors who came into the vast salon. The friends of the house were the favored victims at first, inasmuch as they were better known. You can form your opinion as to whether Julien paid attention. Everything interested him both the substance of things and the manner of making fun of them. And there is Monsieur Descoli, said Mathilde. He doesn't wear a wig any more. Does he want to get a prefectship through sheer force of genius? He is displaying that bald forehead which, he says, is filled with lofty thoughts. He is a man who knows the whole world, said the Marquis de Croisenois. He also goes to my uncle, the Cardinals. He's capable of cultivating a falsehood with each of his friends for years on end, and he has two or three hundred friends. He knows how to nurse friendship. That is his talent. He will go out, just as you see him, in the worst winter weather, and be at the door of one of his friends by seven o'clock in the morning. He quarrels from time to time, and he writes seven or eight letters for each quarrel. Then he has a reconciliation, and he writes seven or eight letters to express his bursts of friendship. But he shines most brilliantly in the frank and sincere expansiveness of the honest man who keeps nothing up his sleeve. This maneuver is brought into play when he has some favor to ask. 
one of my uncle's grand vicars is very good at telling the life of monsieur Descouli since the restoration i will bring him to you bah i don't believe all that it's professional jealousy among the lower classes said the comte de carlus monsieur Descouli will live in history replied the marquis he brought about the restoration together with the abbe de prat and the messieurs de talleyrand and pozzo di borgo that man has handled millions said norbert and i can't conceive why he should come here to swallow my father's epigrams which are frequently atrocious how many times have you betrayed your friends my dear Descouli? he shouted at him one day from one end of the table to the other but is it true that he has played the traitor asked mademoiselle de la mole who has not played the traitor why said the comte de caillus de norbert do you have that celebrated liberal monsieur st clair in your house what the devil's he come here for i must go up to him and speak to him and make him speak he is said to be so clever but how will your mother receive him said monsieur de croisenois he has such extravagant generous and independent ideas look said mademoiselle de la mole look at the independent man who bows down to the ground to monsieur Descouli while he grabs hold of his hand i almost thought he was going to put it to his lips Descouli must stand better with the powers that be than we thought answered monsieur de croisenois st clair comes here in order to get into the academy said norbert see how he bows to the baron l croisenois it would be less base to kneel down replied monsieur de luz my dear sorel said norbert you are extremely smart but you come from the mountains mind you never bow like that great poet is doing even to god the father and there's a really witty man monsieur the baron baton said mademoiselle de la mole imitating a little the voice of the flunkey who had just announced him i think that even your servants make fun of him what a name baron baton said monsieur de carlus what's a new name he said to us the other day went on mathilde imagine the duc de bouillon announced for the first time so far as i am concerned the public only need to get used to me julien left the vicinity of the sofa still insufficiently appreciative of the charming subtleties of a delicate raillery to the laugh at a joke he considered that a jest ought to have some logical foundation he saw nothing in these young people's conversation except a vein of universal scandal-mongering and was shocked by it his provincial or english prudery went so far as to detect envy in it though in this he was certainly mistaken comte de norbert he said to himself who has had to make three drafts 
for a twenty-line letter to his colonel, would be only too glad to have written once in his whole life one page as good as Monsieur Sinclair. Julien approached successively the several groups and attracted no attention by reason of his lack of importance. He followed the Baron Baton from a distance and tried to hear him. This witty man appeared nervous, and Julien did not see him recover his equanimity before he had hit upon three or four stinging phrases. Julien thought that this kind of wit had great need of space. The Baron could not make epigrams. He needed at least four sentences of six lines each in order to be brilliant. That man argues he does not talk, said someone behind Julien. He turned round and reddened with pleasure when he heard the name of the Comte de Charvet. He was the subtlest man of the century. Julien had often found his name in the Memorial of Saint-Hélène, and in the portions of history dictated by Napoleon. The diction of Comte de Chalvet was laconic. His phrases were flashes of lightning, just, vivid, deep. If he talked about any matter, the conversation immediately made a step forward. He imported facts into it. It was a pleasure to hear him. In politics, however, he was a brazen cynic. I am independent, I am, he was saying to a gentleman with three stars, of whom apparently he was making fun. Why insist on my having today the same opinions I had six weeks ago? In that case, my opinion would be my master. Four grave young men who were standing round scowled. These gentlemen did not like flippancy. The Comte saw that he had gone too far. Luckily, he perceived the honest Monsieur Ballon, a veritable hypocrite of honesty. The Count began to talk to him. People closed up, for they realized that poor Ballon was going to be the next victim. Monsieur Ballon, although he was horribly ugly, and his first steps in the world were almost unmentionable, had by dint of his morals and his morality married a very rich wife who had died. He subsequently married a second very rich one who was never seen in society. He enjoyed, in all humility, an income of 60,000 francs and had his own flatterers. Comte de Chalvet talked to him pitilessly about all of this. There was soon a circle of thirty persons round them. Everybody was smiling, including the solemn young men who were the hope of the century. Why does he come to Monsieur de la Mole, where he is obviously only a laughing-stock, thought Julien. He approached the Abbé Pirard to ask him. Monsieur Ballon made his escape. Good, said Norbert. There is one of the spies of my father gone. There is only the little limping Napier left. Can that be the key of the riddle, thought Julien. 
but if so, why does the Marquis receive Monsieur Ballon? The stern Abbe Pirard was scowling in a corner of the salon, listening to the lackeys announcing the names. This is nothing more than a den, he was saying, like another Basil. I see none but shady people come in. As a matter of fact, the severe Abbe did not know what constitutes high society. But his friends, the Jansenites, had given him some very precise notions about those men who only get into society by reason of their extreme subtlety in the service of all parties, or of their monstrous wealth. For some minutes that evening he answered Julien's eager questions fully and freely, and then suddenly stopped short grieved at having always to say ill of everyone and thinking he was guilty of a sin. Bilious Jansenist as he was, and believing, as he did, in the duty of Christian charity, his life was a perpetual conflict. How strange that Abbe Pirard looks, said Mademoiselle de la Mole, as Julian came near the sofa. Julian felt irritated, but she was right all the same. Monsieur Pirard was unquestionably the most honest man in the salon, but his pimply face, which was suffering from the stings of conscience, made him look hideous at this particular moment. Trust physiognomy after this, thought Julien. It is only when the delicate conscience of the Abbe Pirard is reproaching him for some trifling lapse that he looks so awful, while the expression of that notorious spy Napier shows a pure and tranquil happiness. The Abbe Pirard, however, had made great concessions to his party. He had taken a servant and was very well dressed. Julien noticed something strange in the salon. It was that all eyes were being turned towards the door, and there was a semi-silence. The flunky was announcing the famous Baron Tolly, who had just become publicly conspicuous by reason of the elections. Julien came forward and had a very good view of him. The Baron had been the president of an electoral college. He had the brilliant idea of spiriting away the little squares of paper which contained the votes of one of the parties, but to make up for it he replaced them by an equal number of other little pieces of paper containing a name agreeable to himself. This drastic maneuver had been noticed by some of the voters, who had made an immediate point of congratulating the Baron de Tolly. The good fellow was still pale from this great business. Malicious persons had pronounced the word galleys. Monsieur La Mole received him coldly. The poor Baron made his escape. If he leaves us so quickly, it's to go to Monsieur Comte, said Comte de Chalvet, and everyone laughed. Little Tombeau was trying to win his spurs by talking to some silent nobleman and some intriguers, who, though shady, were all men of wit, and were on this particular night in great force in Monsieur de la Mole's salon. 
for he was mentioned for a place in the ministry. If he had not yet any subtlety of perception, he made up for it as one who will see by the energy of his words. Why not sentence that man to ten years' imprisonment? He was saying at the moment when Julien approached his knot. Those reptiles should be confined to the bottom of a dungeon. They are to languish to death in jail. Otherwise their venom will grow and become more dangerous. What is the good of sentencing him to a fine of a thousand crowns? He is poor, so be it all the better, but his party will pay for him. What the case required was a five hundred francs fine and ten years in a dungeon. Well, to be sure, who is the monster they are speaking about, thought Julien, who was viewing with amazement the vehement tone and hysterical gestures of his colleague. At this moment the thin, drawn little face of the academician's nephew was hideous. Julien soon learnt that they were talking of the greatest poet of the century. "'You monster!' Julien exclaimed half aloud, while tears of generosity moistened his eyes. "'You little rascal!' he thought. "'I will pay you out for this.' "'Yet,' he thought, "'those are the unborn hopes of the party of which the Marquis is one of the chiefs.' How many crosses and how many sinecures would that celebrated man, whom he is now defaming, have accumulated if he had sold himself, I won't say to the mediocre ministry of Monsieur de Nerval, but to one of those reasonably honest ministries which we have seen follow each other in succession. The Abbe Pirard motioned to Julia from some distance off. Monsieur Lamol had just said something to him, but when Julien, who was listening at the moment with downcast eyes to the lamentations of the bishop, had at length got free and was able to get near his friend, he found him monopolized by the abominable little tombeau. The little beast hated him as the cause of Julien's favor with the Marquis and was now making up to him. When will death deliver us from that aged rottenness? It was in these words of a biblical energy that the little man of letters was now talking of the venerable Lord Holland. His merit consisted in an excellent knowledge of the biography of living men, and he had just made a rapid review of all the men who could aspire to some influence under the reign of the new king of England. The Abbe Pirat passed into an adjacent salon. Julien followed him. I warn you, the Marquis does not like scribblers. It is his only prejudice. No Latin and Greek, if you can manage it. The history of the Egyptians, Persians, etc. He will honor and protect you as a learned man. But don't write a page of French, especially on serious matters which are above your position in society, or he will call you a scribbler and take you for a scoundrel. 
How is it that living as you do in the hotel of a great lord, you don't know the Duc de Castries epigram on Alembert and Rousseau? The fellow wants to reason about everything. Everything leaks out of here, thought Julien, just like the seminary. He had written eight or six fairly drastic pages. It was a kind of historical eulogy of the old surgeon major, who had, he said, made a man of him. The little notebook, said Julien to himself, has always been locked. He went up to his room, burnt his manuscript, and returned to the salon. The brilliant scoundrels had left it. Only the men with the stars were left. Seven or eight very aristocratic ladies, very devout, very affected, and of from thirty to thirty-five years of age, were grouped round the table that the servants had just brought in ready served. The brilliant Maréchal de Fervac came in apologizing for the lateness of the hour. It was more than midnight. She went and sat down near the Marquise. Julien was deeply touched. She had the eyes and the expression of Madame de Renal. Mademoiselle de la Mole's circle was still full of people. She was engaged with her friends in making fun of the unfortunate Comte de Thaler. He was the only son of that celebrated Jew who was famous for the riches that he had won by lending money to kings to make war on the peoples. The Jew had just died, leaving his son an income of one hundred thousand crowns a month, and a name that was only too well known. This strange position required either a simple character or force of willpower. Unfortunately, the Comte was simply a, a fellow who was inflated by all kinds of pretensions which had been suggested to him by all his toadies. Monsieur de Caillus asserted that they had induced him to make up his mind to ask for the hand of Mademoiselle de la Mole, to whom the Marquis de Coisenois, who would be a duke with a hundred thousand francs a year, was paying his attentions. Oh, do not accuse him of having a mind, said Norbert pitifully. Willpower was what the poor Comte de Thaler lacked most of all. So far as this side of his character went, he was worthy of being a king. He would take counsel from everybody, but he never had the courage to follow any advice to the better end. His physiognomy would be sufficient in itself, Mademoiselle de la Mole was fond of saying, to have inspired her with a holy joy. It was a singular mixture of anxiety and disappointment but from time to time one could distinguish gusts of self-importance, and, above all, that trenchant tome suited to the richest man in France, especially when he had nothing to be ashamed of in his personal appearance, and was not yet thirty-six. He is timidly insolent, Monsieur de Coisenois would say. The Comte de Caillus, Norbert, and two or three mustachioed young people made fun of him to their heart's content, without him suspecting it, and finally packed him off as one o'clock struck. 
are those your famous arab horses waiting for you at the door in this awful weather said norbert to him no it is a new pair which are much cheaper said monsieur de Talaire. the horse on the left cost me five thousand francs while the one on the right is only worth one hundred louis but i would ask you to believe me when i say that i only have him out at night his trot you see is exactly like the other ones norbert's remark made the comte think it was good form for a man like him to make a hobby of his horses and that he must not let them get wet he went away and the other gentleman left a minute afterwards making fun of him all the time so thought julien as he heard them laugh on the staircase i have the privilege of seeing the exact opposite of my own situation i have not got twenty louis a year and i found myself side by side with a man who has twenty louis an hour and they made fun of him seeing a sight like that cures one of envy end of section four reading by malone